Hi, I'm Max Rafaga, and welcome to a very, very special episode of the Finimize podcast. My guest today is Kathy Wood, founder and CEO of ARK Invest. And with over 40 years of experience identifying and investing in innovation, Kathy started ARK to focus solely on disruptive innovation. And since Kathy and I spoke pretty much a year ago today, we've witnessed major breakthroughs in AI and the rise of new innovations. So we couldn't have a better guest to speak to today. And with that, Kathy, fantastic to have you with us again. Thanks for joining us. Excited to, to, to dive in with you. My pleasure, Max. It's great to see you again. And, I, and I, love, I love your audience. Thank you. So as I said, a lot has happened in markets, a lot has happened in economies, a lot has happened in geopolitics. Wars are destabilizing geopolitics. Domestic politics are dividing nations. A new interest rate regime is shaking up financial markets. And so I want to start with a very simple question. As if I were a five-year-old, I, I was hoping you could explain to me, in, in such a world of uncertainty, what's been going on? What do you make of it? And where do we go from here? Yes. You know, I think, as you say, the combination of interest rates going up at the most rapid rate ever in history. We've never seen rates go up this much in such a short period of time. Uh, that combined with wars, uh, both Ukraine and now Israel, that has caused a lot of uncertainty in the markets. And we have, by some measures, record-breaking cash on the sidelines. Why is that? You're being paid to hold cash. You know, if it's roughly four and a half, five percent. The long-term return average of the S&P 500, so for the last hundred years, is in the seven to eight percent range. If you can get five percent with all the uncertainties going on out there, why take risk in the stock market? I think that's been the prevailing psychology, but that's now also the opportunity. There is so much cash on the sidelines. And we do believe interest rates are going to come down. And that cash will move into longer duration assets. Uh, what that means are assets that don't pay you right away, but you have to wait for earnings momentum and so forth. So we've been through very difficult three years, especially since early 21, when people were going back to work after getting vaccinated and rates started going up, supply chain issues, lots and lots went wrong. We're on the other side of that now. So uh, we're much more optimistic. So you think the worst is over and we're now entering a phase of recovery? Is that, is that what I'm understanding from what you're saying? Well, many people are using the words soft landing to describe what is going to happen. We believe that we've been through a rolling recession here. Uh, I think many people are surprised when they reflect on the fact that existing home sales here in the United States are down 40%. They're down 40% because mortgage rates went up so fast and people in their homes, they're in them now, they have 3% mortgage rates, they're not going to roll over and into a, a 7 to 8% mortgage rate. So housing's been in a recession. Autos have been very weak by historical standards. Commercial real estate is in terrible shape. And so I think the next thing that will happen in 
this rolling recession is unemployment rate is going to go up because companies are losing the pricing power that they enjoyed during COVID when we had supply chain problems. And we believe prices are going to start coming down, hurting company margins. And so after hoarding labor, it was so hard to get labor for so long, they hoarded it. Now they'll probably let some of it go. And so consumption will probably be the next weak spot. We're already hearing it from the major department stores. Even Walmart is saying, uh, we're going to have to attract the consumer back uh, with lower prices. Uh, so big, big change. And yet, despite all of these statistics, um, we are seeing what appears to be a Christmas rally. Uh, the S&P is up nearly 10% over the last month or so. Goldman Sachs recently came out and said uh, they only ascribe a 15% chance of a U.S. recession in 2024. They were always the most optimistic ones, um, and, and now they've become even more optimistic. Would you agree with that assessment? It sounds like you're a little bit more skeptical than, than that assessment um, of, of where we are in the cycle. Yes, I think that this rolling recession will continue. I mean, it won't be anything like 08, 09. So if you're comparing to that, this will be a soft landing. When most strategists and economists say soft landing, they usually mean we won't go through two negative quarters to consecutively in real GDP growth. Uh, we think that we will go through that, but it won't be anything like 08, 09. It'll be a further cleansing of the economy, you know, as corporations right size and use new tools, especially AI tools, uh, to increase productivity and salvage their mar margins as prices come down. So not a serious recession, but I don't think it'll be a soft landing. And, and so the question is, why is the stock market going up? It is going that up. That would have been my follow-up question. Yeah. <laughs> That's your follow-up question, I'm sure. Well, it is going up because uh, the market begins to, is beginning to see long rates in particular, but also short rates coming down. I think after this earnings season, with most of the retailers saying, it's not too good out there, here in the United States at least, and I would say that's true in many places of the world, I think that this idea that interest rates are going to be higher for longer, that is starting to dissipate. And the idea that interest rates are going to come down is starting to move into market expectations with the first uh, rate cut from the Fed uh, expected now in March of 24, as opposed to no rate cut at all being the prior expectation. You mentioned the US quite a bit there. Uh, if we could double click on that for a second, What's your view as ARC and, and, and perhaps as, as, as Kathy Wood on the future of the US? Um, obviously, on the one side, still the home of some of the greatest innovations like AI. On the other side, huge debt problem, a lot of commotion, let's say, on the, on the political front. And some people are a lot less optimistic about the future role of the US at the same time you are having this constant debate around you know is is the superpower on the decline and and are we seeing other powers pushing up like the BRICS what's your take on the US and the future role of the US 
Yes, well, um, we look at the U.S. primarily through the lens of innovation. So I'll start there and then uh, go a little more broadly. Our concern until recently has been that uh, U.S. regulators want to chase innovation away or or are at risk of doing that. And Bitcoin blockchain technology has been the primary concern here. That is changing, and it's because of what's called the checks and balances in the U.S. government and regulatory ecosystem. So we have the executive branch, uh, that's uh, President Biden, uh, who in the case of the SEC nominated Chairman Gensler. And then Chairman Gensler has really played a very tough hand when it's come to innovation in the blockchain space chasing it away, threatening to chase it away. But now we have the judicial branch and the legislative branch. So the three branches of our government, judicial and legislative are basically questioning the SEC and the SEC is losing in court. Uh, So this is very good. This is why America does uh, tend to work. It's messy, uh, but it does tend to work over time. The voice of the people will get into that conversation. And so we're becoming less worried on that point of, from that point of view. In terms of our standing in the world, you know, we look at uh, China has been the biggest threat, I would say, to the U.S.'s standing as a superpower. But what we've learned in this last year is China's having a lot of economic problems at home, and uh, they are becoming more insular that way. And so that concern is dissipating somewhat. Um, We do think uh, that China, like the U.S., will use innovation to help solve its problems. But we think the problems in China are much more deep-seated because China basically leveraged up over a 20-year period consistently with property and infrastructure being the two biggest spending categories. And leverage, too much leverage typically ends badly. And we're hearing about uh, the developers going bust and China's government letting them go bust. This has hurt the property sector and property accounts for roughly 75% of consumer savings there. The property prices are coming down, so they're losing their savings. And then in Europe, Europe has still the north-south divide, the different strengths of these economic systems. And it's also seeing more from the east-west divide, where you have Eastern Eastern European bloc basically vetoing measures that uh, the other European nations want. So uh, there's a bit of gridlock there. I don't think gridlock is great. It's better than too much government intrusion. So uh, as many people say, the U.S. is the best house in a bad neighborhood. That's how how we're thinking about it. And you mentioned the BRICS. And uh, of course, the C in BRICS is China, China has had a very big impact on the rest of the BRICS, and we do think it is now becoming much more focused on its own problems internally. And so we think uh, the developing nations are benefiting from supply chains moving away from China. So if you take the C out of BRICS, I think that group of countries will probably do well. But they also do need a superpower among them to become a really powerful block. 
And while we're on that, just very briefly, what, what's your what's your take on India? India has been getting a lot of good press recently, perhaps a contender for China. Is that how you see it? Or, or do you think they're a bit a bit too junior for, for that position? No, I think India just passed China in terms of uh, number of people in the population. Uh, so that's a good starting point. Uh, and we are seeing that India is a beneficiary of supply chains moving away from China. So that's also very good. My experience with India over 40 plus years is it's a true dem a democracy. Not even the US is a true democracy. We're a constitutional republic. But a true democracy, you know, means that, you know, the, the voice of the people, uh, very loud, lots of uh, competing priorities and a lot of gridlock. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't think it'll move as fast as China did. It will continue to move forward. Uh, we do believe that. Uh, but it's not going to be a booming economy uh, the way that China was. It'll be a healthy economy moving forward. Got it. So we've painted a little bit the the, the picture of, of what's been happening. Then I was listening to one of your recent interviews uh, where you mentioned that you see deflation as the next big risk. So wanted to dive into that a little bit more. Number one, uh, to explain to our viewers, what is deflation? Number two, we were all talking about inflation. How come we're now talking about deflation? How did we go from A to B here? Uh, and, and number three, what are the key reasons why you see this as such a big risk? Yes. Well, it's a risk and an opportunity. So there are two sides to deflation, I think. Uh, so we're talking about price deflation here. And what that means is instead of prices going up broadly, prices could come down broadly. And we, we think that actually has already started. Now, there's good deflation and bad deflation. Bad deflation, bad price deflation is associated with debt uh, basically implosions and, and, and falling prices for that reason. 0809 was more along those lines. But there's another source of deflation that can be very good, price deflation, and that's innovation. Technologically enabled innovation, like our five platforms, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, and multi-omic sequencing, all of those are deflationary. And as units grow... Can you explain that, that part? Why are they deflationary? Yes. Uh, so technologies go through learning curves. The, the more units that are produced, the more efficient companies become at producing them. So they are characterized by falling costs. Technology, as you know, is typically... Um, typically enjoys falling costs. You, there's a trade-off. Either you in, improve performance for the same price, and that certainly has been the case with uh, Apple phones over the years, or you see falling prices so that now we see uh, cell phone prices for as low as $20, $10, in the emerging markets. Uh, so that's what we mean. And um, we're seeing deflation broadly as these five innovation platforms are hitting prime time. Uh, I'll just give you a, an example. For, for every cumulative doubling in the number of electric vehicles produced, 
the costs of the drivetrain, so uh, the battery pack systems that power them, drop by 28%. And so what, what's cumulative doubling? It's one to two, two to four, four to... Now we're at a higher base, so it'll take longer for the prices to fall now by 28%. But still, it is a falling... It, the, the learning curve is still at work in electric drivetrains, whereas in the internal combustion end of the market, that's completely mature. And uh, we're not seeing cost declines. And in fact, regulations are pushing costs and prices up for uh, gas-powered vehicles. So that's what we mean. And it's why innovation takes share from the old world, right? Uh, In electric vehicles, we would say better, cheaper, faster. Uh, They're more productive in the sense that maintenance costs are 60% lower. You don't have to buy gasoline every week. So all of that sounds fantastic. So that, so what's the what's the risk then? What's the concern with deflation? So the risk is in let's use that example then. Electric vehicles sales are booming relative to gas-powered vehicle sales. Uh, so the consumer preference shift is now underway. And while electric vehicle manufacturers can afford to cut prices because their costs are coming down. The gas-powered car players cannot cut prices without killing their margins. And you'll notice what has happened recently is the traditional auto manufacturers are pulling back on electric vehicle manufacturing in the U.S. Certainly both GM and Ford have announced that because they can't make profits. And that's because they haven't scaled enough yet. If you don't scale, you're not going to make profits in some of these new areas. In Germany, we're seeing a a bit of a different dynamic. They're becoming very serious about electric vehicles. So this is the fork in the road. And uh, what this means is the German auto manufacturers are going to lose more money short term in the electric vehicle space, but they're also going to move away from the gas-powered space much faster than the Americans are. And if the market is going electric, then the American automakers are making a mistake and they will be stuck with obsolete product, right, in, the, in their inventory that they will have to discount in order to attract new buyers. That's bad deflation because they're going to lose money that way. Got it. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, last year, we talked about crypto. Obviously, we'd love to talk about crypto uh, this year again. Last year, you mentioned that Bitcoin will or could reach uh, $1 million uh, by 2030. Since we spoke, it's obviously gone on a roller coaster ride, as have other assets as well, um, and now seems to be slowly recovering. First of all, do you stand by that forecast or has anything changed on the outlook? Um, if it were to become true, we I think we have six years left until uh, 2030. That would roughly mean that if I did my math right, Bitcoin would have to 30x in, 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 in price. Um, so curious how you think about what what would be driving that value creation. Yes, something very ha- important happened this year. Last year was marked by just horrible uh, events, in, uh, ending with the FTX bankruptcy, and so you know the the brand of crypto was damaged. This year, something really interesting happened, with, particularly to Bitcoin, but with all of the crypto assets. In March, 
the U.S. had a regional banking crisis. Silicon Valley Bank went bankrupt. So did Signature Bank. So California and uh, New York. And what happened to Bitcoin during that time, as the crisis was taking place? Bitcoin went from 19,000 to almost 30,000. That told us for the first time that more investors out there are thinking about Bitcoin as a flight to safety. Before that, they were thinking of it as a a so-called risk-on asset. When the markets are in a good mood, crypto assets tended to enjoy rallies. This is the first time we've seen Bitcoin rally in a crisis. So think about that. An asset that performs in risk-off and can perform in uh, both risk-off and risk-on, that's really interesting. And the second thing that's happened is it does seem that the SEC is getting close to approving a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, Now, we're first in line, I'm happy to report, uh, but we believe they will approve more than one at the same time. Now, institutional uh, investors, I think, are waiting for the SEC seal of approval. And then we're going to get institutional flows. And we think that will be the biggest reason for the price increase towards $1 million plus, as well as just the idea that this is digital gold. This has been its role That will also increase, again, because of uh, institutions. And then the final uh, reason we're seeing Bitcoin in particular and other crypto assets enjoying more acceptance in the rest of the world, especially the emerging markets, is because of the hyperinflation taking place there. And the new president of Argentina is a, a Bitcoin advocate, just like uh, President Bukele in El Salvador. So we're going to see nation states supporting this, uh, trying to protect their populations from bad fiscal and monetary policies. So those are three big reasons. Okay, fantastic. Looking ahead, 2024, perhaps even beyond that, what are some of the big investment themes that you're excited about? Well, we do think that if the rolling recession continues, as, as we do, do believe it will, that the biggest surprise, and it started with AI already and chat GPT, but the biggest surprise is that these new technologies are going to take off faster than many, many investors believe because they solve problems. They are all better, cheaper, faster, more productive. Uh, they create, um, more interesting products and services. Uh, And so as margin pressure evolves with price deflation, the primary reason, uh, we think the shift towards innovation-based strategies is going to pay off. We've paid our dues during the last, uh, I would say during 21 and 22, when the fear of interest rates going up and then the reality of interest rates going up absolutely hammered our strategy, and any long-duration strategy, including long-bond strategies, uh, which saw the worst depreciation over the two years, in the last two to three years, since the 1700s. Uh, We think we'll see a reversal of that. 
And so that means long duration assets uh, should be the biggest beneficiary after after some very difficult experiences during the during the last couple of years. And is there any one one or two companies specifically that you're especially excited about that you would be happy to share? Sure. Uh, well, if in the securities space, so equity space, Coinbase is, as we've seen other exchanges come under uh, regulatory pressure, it is gaining share. And so we think that Coinbase could be one of the biggest beneficiaries of this move in crypto asset pricing that we were discussing uh, a bit earlier, because it in it has collaborated and is in a partnership with BlackRock, one of the biggest institutional uh, firms out there. And so we think that partnership will help Coinbase quite a bit. Tesla, I'll always give a shout out. Um, it's under a bit of a cloud again. Most people uh, do not believe that autonomous is going to take off, meaning robo-taxis. Uh, we think it will. We know that Cruise, which is GM's autonomous uh, subsidiary, uh, has just taken all of its autonomous cars off the road, not off the road. Now they have to put safety drivers in once again. So we're under a cloud when it comes to autonomous, but we think the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence are go going to continue at such a rapid pace uh, that Tesla will win the lion's share of the robo-taxi market in the US. And um, we think that that market by 2030, globally, now this is globally for everyone, not just Tesla, will be a four to five trillion dollar market. That's just the platform providers like Tesla. Uh, the entire market, we think, with every, every player in the ecosystem will be an eight to $10 trillion market. And to put that in perspective, today, the global economy is about $100 trillion and robo-taxis are basically nothing. So we're going to see super exponential growth, which is a word we're using more and more now, super exponential, which means very strong growth rates that actually accelerate instead of decay to the nom nominal GDP growth rate. Just one last question before before we dive into the quickfire round. Obviously, our audience uh, are retail investors. So if you were a regular retail investor today, knowing what you know and what we just talked about and looking ahead, how would you think about um, the, the next 12 to 18 months and how would you position your portfolio? Well, uh, what I tell all retail investors is to average into a strategy, either or either use an advisor who will do this, or as you get more excited about whether it's crypto, innovation-based strategies, the average market, the equity market, broad-based indices, average in. Don't throw, if you're, if you're one of those with a lot of cash on the sidelines, do what I suggest to my own family. Average in and if the market's going down, you'll average down and you'll get better prices. And that should be psychologically pleasing that you're getting in at lower prices and ultimately there will be a recovery. So your average will be lower than your starting point. And then the other way of looking at it is if the market's going up and your average in as the market's going up, sure, your average price of entry is going up. 
but the whole market's going up and that psychologically is a good feeling. And, you know, some members of my family are putting, have been putting in during the very difficult markets for innovation in 01, I mean, in 21 and 22, uh, they've been putting in $20 every two weeks or $20 a month. And it really does add up over time. Fantastic. Yeah, the the, the power of uh, dollar cost averaging, something that we talk a lot about at Finimize. So fantastic to hear. So let's move into the to the quick fire round um, just uh, very, very, very quickly. Uh, what was your first investment ever? Uh, well, actually, it was the, the, in the physical world, it was my car. It cost $600 in 1976. <laughs> it was a, a, a 1971 Mustang, which I loved. In the world of finance, I started in New York City in the early 80s. And we had taken the position at Jenison Associates that interest rates and inflation were peaking in the 15% range. And so what I did is I, here I was in the equity market, but the bond market had been so punished uh, that uh, I decided to buy 20-year zero coupon bonds. Uh, and so that's the most leveraged way to play bonds. And of course, over the following 20 years, interest rates collapsed. And so that was a, a very good um, a good selection. Which brings me to my next question. What was your best and your worst investment? I guess you answered uh, potentially your best, but I don't know if you had a better one. But best and worst? Yeah. So, so far, Tesla and Bitcoin have been our two best uh, stocks ever. Uh, uh, stocks and uh, crypto ever. Um, and, and we do believe crypto um, and D Bitcoin, Ether in particular, are, uh, represent a new asset class, a good diversifier. Uh, worst, uh, well, A123 was a battery manufacturer and uh, it was before its time. Um, it was working with appliance industries, but had sites on electric vehicles and uh, we mistimed that, and it just it just reminded me how important it is to do the kind of research we do now, which we can do, focused on okay, how quickly are costs going to fall? What is that learning curve look like? So we spend a lot of time focused on that particular issue, and then the other one I'll say to be fair and balanced, I gave you two, so we'll give you the other two. It was a, a group of stocks uh, at Jenison. I was the analyst on Mexican stocks and that emerging market was just emerging. And I got to know some uh, people in positions of great power uh, from a corporate point of view who were able, who had, you know, um, a link, close link to the president of the country. And when they reassured me that Mexico would not devalue, there was no way I took them at their word. I felt they knew uh, what the inner circle was thinking. And boy, was I wrong. 1994, they devalued. And my entire group of stocks got clipped by that. So I guess I should know you, you, you can't trust that kind of information uh, because Mexico was really forced into it. It was forced into it. There was nothing they could do. Great. And, and last question. Um... Which investor or investors, uh, plural, do you look up to? Well, I have to give a shout out to uh, the most 
one of the most important mentors I've had in, in my career, and that uh, was Sig Sigalis. He was the chief investment officer at, at Janison Associates, where I spent 18 years. And he really taught me uh, his love of technology was infectious. Uh, and so that's why I moved so much towards technology investing. And then the other one, oh, now Sig just passed away in January. So when I say shout out, may he rest in peace and uh, just all kinds of gratitude there. Someone living today uh, is Ron Barron. Now, Ron and I have very different strategies. He will um, always hedge his bets like uh, Tesla and SpaceX with very, you know, more cyclical stocks or defensive stocks. We do not do that. Uh, we assume that our advisors do allocate carefully to our strategy, which is volatile. Uh, and we keep focused on only on disruptive innovation. There's so much happening. But Ron, what he's done um, is followed one of uh, Warren Buffett's dictates is when you see a big idea, buy it and don't sell. And so he has done that. Now, some people don't like that. But I think in some of his portfolios, Tesla is up to 40%. And of course, we can't do that, uh, <clears throat> given what we do. Or Apple in Berkshire is also yes, a major yes, chunk. Exactly. So, you know, it's not what we do, but it is one way to invest and uh, love his focus on these big ideas, uh, consider the source, that's all we do. But it is very nice in this world where so many asset managers have gone benchmark sensitive and just invest quite like their benchmarks, that someone like Ron it will step out there and say, no, this is a big idea and I am holding on. Since you mentioned volatility, I, uh, there, there's one final question that, that came to mind. Uh, I, I assume it takes a lot of nerves and patience and uh, can be quite exhausting uh, to be in the markets, especially in times like this. Is there a certain habit or a certain practice that you do to, to maintain your, your, your calmness and uh, your patience throughout this? Well, I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm, I'm used to market cycles. Uh, but what we do, and this is good from a psychological release point of view, during downtime, so this was 21 and 22, we concentrate our portfolio towards our highest conviction names. We have a scoring system, a six metric scoring system, and we concentrate towards our highest conviction names. So our flagship strategy went, which was ARKK in the US, went from 58 names down to 27 names over those that two-year period. Now we're diversifying once again. But what we have found is we tend to not go back to roughly 50% of those stocks, 50, 50%. Sometimes we only go back to 25% of them. We like them, but they're not our highest conviction names. They tend to be good sales when we're forced into selling. So it's a discipline and then diversification. And especially when bull markets really take off and everybody loves what we do, then we tend to diversify into what we call cash-like innovation. So that would be like meta platforms, huge amount of cash or Apple, huge amount of cash in the innovation space, uh, but diversifying into lower volatility names because that's what we'll sell also, when we get back to our concentration strategy in the next down market. Amazing. 
Thanks so much, Kathy. I'm afraid we've run out of time. But huge thank you uh, to joining us once again and, and sharing your insights and your views and your thought processes. I think um, that's incredibly helpful for our community, for the Finimize audience. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully we can we can do the same thing next year and make, make a ritual out of this. Yeah, that'll be fun, Max. Thank you so much. And uh, as, as I said and believe, you're doing your audience a great service, I think, with... Uh, your advice and the advice of the people you have on. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you.